Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea. I'm happy to be back with you after a long forced hiatus due to voice issues. As you can probably hear, my voice is not completely healed, but I will be doing some voice therapy to tackle these last concerns, and I hope my voice won't be too raspy or distracting for you. This month's guest is Bob Clunas. Bob is a PhD candidate and researcher in the Cultural Studies program at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. Bob graduated in 2017 a bachelor's degree in film studies on accelerationist aesthetics and action cinema, while in 2020 he received a master's degree in cultural studies with a thesis on the weird and eerie in contemporary and digital cultures. His current PhD project deals with the relationship between esotericism and acceleration in UK subcultures in the late 20th century through a discursive analysis of chaos magic and the cybernetic cultures research unit, also known as CCRU. As part of his academic research, Bob's interests look at the myriad intersections between esotericism and contemporary subcultures such as cyberpunk, cyberspace, and technology, the counterculture and the new age, comics, zine culture, and music. He has also given papers centered on Icelandic culture and spiritual currents such as asatru, spiritualism, and wellness. As you can tell from the episode title, Bob and I are talking about a little bit of everything. And while on the surface, these things may seem unrelated, as the discussion unfolds, I hope it will become clear that all of these strands are indeed very much connected. As this was a long interview, I'm providing it to you in two parts. In part one, Bob begins by explaining the terms the weird and the eerie, and how these literary concepts have helped to fuel the social imagination, as well as the tricky issue of how one discerns between fiction and reality. With the help of philosophical concepts such as the hyperreal and simulacra, taken from Baudrillard, as well as other concepts from French philosophers such as Deleuze, uh, Guattari, and Lyotard, Bob discusses the effects of signs, symbols, and other images on our understanding of what's quote-unquote real, as well as the dissolving boundaries between the real and the artificial. This all takes us into the area of hyperstition, the CCRU, and a case study that is a good example of a hyperstition found in the Slenderman character, and later incident in 2014 involving Slenderman, where two girls come to believe that he is a real entity, attempting to kill their friend because of it. Bob also talks about how such a character becomes implanted in our collective consciousness through digital interactions such as memes, and later becomes a part of our cultural history. Bob also touches on the concept of acceleration, which he later expands upon 
in part two. For now, though, I hope you enjoy part one. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I am. I'm so happy to be talking with you. It's such a pleasure. Uh, we're going to be talking about all things weird, and I'm so happy. I'm so looking forward to this. Uh, yeah. I've been kind of out of uh, out of the running for a little bit, forced uh, out of the running uh, due to my voice issues. But uh, uh, hopefully, everything will go well today. So, uh, welcome again. Oh well, thank you, Earth. and yeah, I just want to say it was a bit of an honor to be invited on oh. to your podcast. Sam. I mean. My first thought was like, wow, wonderful. And then my second thought was, why? Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, it's because obviously we have had, you've had many wonderful guests. And uh, so asking me, I was kind of like, okay, you know, a, a quasi academic from the council estate, you know, all the way up in Iceland, it's 10 a.m. and it's still dark outside. Yeah. Kind of like, but um, hopefully I will not disappoint. Oh, of course you won't disappoint. I mean, reading your work and talking with you, the, the little time that I was able to talk with you, I knew that it was going to be a great conversation. Yeah. So even though uh, you're working on your PhD now, uh, the basis for this interview is your master thesis titled, quote, I am an other and I always was on the weird and eerie in contemporary and digital cultures, end quote. And I love that title. I'm an other and I always was. I thought that was great. Uh, so this thesis discusses the aesthetic concepts of the weird and the eerie and how these have helped to fuel the social imagination, as well as how we can think about, quote, fiction and, quote, reality, among many other things. Uh, and you sent me that message this morning about looking it over and not recognizing anything that you had written. And I was like, I could relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I think it's if you are in academia and you go back to some of your earlier writings, yeah. you kind of go like, I don't remember writing any of this. It, it feels like a fever dream, you know, almost yeah. almost crafty. And I'm merely a carrier for alien forces, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Which my <laughs> Benedict Huxton will just give me that look going, oh, God, here we go. Uh. So. <laughs> Well, we're going to we're going to get through this. We're going to we're going to remember everything perfectly. I have my notes and I'm sure your memory will will uh, come back to you about everything. Uh, so let's maybe start with uh, our definitions, of course. So that's what we have to do in academia. Uh, what are we talking about? What are you talking about? I guess I should ask you uh, when you use the terms weird and eerie uh, and then these associated concepts of the gothic and the uncanny. Uh, so if we can kind of get an idea of what it is that we're talking about, then we kind of make ourselves a framework for uh, for our later discussion. We can expand on all of this. So, yeah, just for those who aren't aware, um, I uh, graduated with a master's in cultural studies in 2020. And it was about the weird and the eerie. So uh, for the basis of my thesis, I took um, the last published book, um, well, by Mark Fisher, uh, his 2017 book, The Weird and the Eerie, which was a collection of essays that kind of go all the way back to his early days when he was blogging under the name of K-Punk. And, you know, throughout his entire life, um, you know, he was kind of fascinated by um, kind of these aesthetic registers, which he came to, you know, talk about things such as 
what is weird and the eerie. Um, because also one of his big projects was about the idea of the social imagination and about how contemporary capitalism uh, and through the neoliberal project had effectively colonized the social imagination to the extent that um, we couldn't, we can't imagine any alternatives to it. You know, the idea being that we can imagine the end of world before the end of capitalism, which is an oft-quoted um, piece. And so he starts to look at ideas of where we, you know, there's these eruptions of different aesthetics and different um, ontological standpoints through culture that allows us to think differently. And one of the, these things is the idea of the weird and the eerie. So, um, basically, very simply, um, you know, the weird has its own kind of history. Um, uh, which goes all the way back to the ideas of um, weird fiction. Um, so the idea here is that this has its roots in definitely in things such as famously H.P. Lovecraft um, and people like Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Mackin, the era of Weird, weird Tales magazine from the like the late 19th century up to about 1940 or so. Um, but then people have argued that there was this um, this what was called the New Weird, uh, which was um, coined by the writer M. John Harrison, um, you know, to, for example, talk about uh, China Mieville, um, but also uh, things such as Jeff Van der Meer, um, Clive Barker, Thomas Ligotti. Um, and the idea here is that these, um, the, these are kind of like hybrid uh, literary genres um, that it's they they're kind of like speculative fiction where they take our empirical world and imbue it with um shall we say um beings powers that's alternative to what we consider the familiar and this is where um shall we say that fisher comes in because fisher then basically argues that at the heart of the weird is effectively um that's how would you describe it here it's something which does not belong you know it is an eruption uh of the inside of our secular world with something from the outside and this out thing from the outside does not belong and it cannot be contained or explained um so fisher argues that um you know he basically says that this eruption from the outside, it can be material, it can be aesthetic, and it's something that's unexplainable or indescribable. But he argues that while this can be quite horrific um, or give us, um, it's not just horror or dread, but at the heart, there's a fascination to the weird, um, which he calls the usons. My French is terrible here. Um, and there's this like there's a sense of wrongness here with the weird. He argues that um, this conviction that this thing uh, does not belong, but it's also a sign that we're in the presence of something new and unexplainable, and that um, previous rational concepts and ideas have been rendered obsolete because they cannot explain this thing. And so he puts this not kind of as discrete boundaries, but like a kind of a spectrum 
So in our society, we can argue that, you know, where we sometimes sense or feel things or come across stuff which is off kilter, um, something which um, there's something kind of wrong. We call it like, you know, we call all sorts of things glitches in the matrix, mm. um, for example. And in his book, he, for example, does um, famously, he talks about Lovecraft, but he also talks about um, British post-punk, such as The Fall. Uh, he talks about, um, uh, let's see if I'm trying to remember here, uh, Tim Powers. Uh, the, he's a, you know, a weird fiction. Um, and then he talks for this about the weird, and then it's kind of its partner, which is the eerie, which is even more kind of ephemeral and fleeting because what the eerie here um, is that it's something more abstract and strange, and it's to do with presence or the metaphysics of presence. And the eerie can be boiled down to the idea of um, this this presence that maybe you know the idea that where there is supposed to be nothing, there is something, or where there should be something, there is nothing. And the idea here is that um, he argues that the eerie is constituted by a failure of absence or by a failure of presence. So, for example, you can have something like um, the Easter Island statues, you know, where there's this thing, there's these these heads in an island in the middle of nowhere, and it's like they shouldn't be there, but you know, they're there, and it's like, well, how did they get there? Nobody knows. Nobody true. And we can come up with speculations of how they how all these stones got you know brought across many hundreds of kilometers of water, but it's hard. It's a mystery. But we also see it, for example, in things like um, in abandoned buildings, you know, abandoned hospitals or abandoned farmhouses in uh, you know in the in the wild in the woods, you know. And also, what's here is that uh, this can lead to uh, descriptive terms such as an eerie silence or an eerie cry. Um, so the idea here is that there's this um, issue, it's an, a question of presence, that's a problem. And at its heart, the weird and the eerie, and this is where it comes into the idea of things like um, the uncanny. Um, the weird and the eerie often kind of get used as synonyms with the uncanny. Um, but the problem here is that the eerie, um, uh, especially the eerie, is often uh, not located in human confines like the home or the locales of the family. They're in marginal spaces, you know, so where there's often a certain lack of human presence, such as, you know, an abandoned building or uh, a deep, dark forest or a wild moor in the remote moor in the middle of nowhere. And... So what he puts here is that it's a question of agency. Um, the question of agency here is, and here's a quote that he has, is that it's about the forces that govern our lives and the world. And in the case of a failure of absence, the question concerns the existence of agency. Is there an aid deliberative agent here at all? Are we being watched by an entity that has not yet revealed itself? In the case of the failure of presence, the question concerns the particular nature of the agent at work. And then he argues that we know that Stonehenge has been erected. So the questions of whether there was an agent behind its construction or not does not arise. 
what we have to reckon with are the traces of a departed agent whose purposes are unknown. So you see, this is, gets into things like ancient aliens and mm. all sorts of weird ephemera. But the thing here is that in terms of the uncanny, is that um, you know when you think about the famous essay by Freud on the uncanny, is that he talks about, um, if I remember correctly here, is that it talks about E.T.A. Hoffman and the Sandman. And the idea here is that um, th this is a psychological concept. So the uncanny, he equates um, Freud, who equates with the word the um, umheimlich, which is the negative of heimlich, which is the familiar, the homely. And Freud declares that the uncanny is unfamiliar, unhomely. And yeah, in his analysis of the Sandman, uh, there are instances of doubling, um, uh, automatism, you know, where animated, you know, inanimate objects or automations seem to have a life of their own. Um, but Fisher critiques this in his book and in other writings where um, Freud is attempting to kind of do an analysis on Hoffman. So he reduces, you know, the the fear of losing one's eyes to castration anxiety. And he basically tries to kind of do this move where bringing the outside into the inside. So it's this, um, so the idea here is that, um, if I remember correctly, I'm trying to remember here from, you know, this idea that um, it's, it's trying to kind of rationalize the weird and the eerie into the idea of the uncanny. You know um, that it brings it into the the familiar and the home um, the homely. And what Fisher argues is is that he, no, uh, this is not possible. And it's it's an eruption from the outside. You know, so hence why Lovecraft is an exemplar of such. Uh, I hope this makes sense. You know, um, I was trying to like remember all this straight off from scratch this morning. But essentially, that is what um, the weird and the eerie is. And I used um, this as a kind of a leaping off point to look at um, where the weird and the eerie erupts in, um, in contemporary societies. Um, so in my master thesis, I looked at a case of the weird and the case of the Slenderman, um, our kind of the, our first digital uh, folk devil or folk legend. And then I looked at the eerie into kind of the writing and work of J.G. Ballard. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely a, a weird, a weird ride in terms of researching this. Well, it sounds it, it from my perspective, it sounds super interesting. But I like the weird and the eerie uh, things. So uh, this is right up my alley. So that's. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about all of this, because I was very curious to hear your ideas about all of this. So you mentioned the Slender Man. We're going to get into that more uh, in, in just a moment. But uh, another very important, uh, important area of discussion that flows from the first discussion here uh, concerns the boundaries between what we perceive as, quote, fiction and, quote, reality. Because you were talking about, you know, presence and agency, and these are things, you know, the the unheimlich and, and all of that, you know, we're things that are either familiar or unfamiliar or, uh, you know, how, how are we determining this? And uh, when it's explicitly said, 
no, this is a fiction. Uh, and yet things are happening in our empirical reality that are making us think, well, maybe this isn't really truly a fiction. How are we distinguishing uh, between these two things? So let's talk about how, ha how it has become more difficult for us to discern between fiction and real. Uh, and of course, there's so much to unpack here. So I'm going to let you tackle this how you would like to tackle it. But I think when yeah. we get into things, well, your your thesis, of course, gets into the ideas of postmodernism and Baudrillard and the concept of simulacra and all of these things. But however you would like to open this discussion, that's fine with me. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's this question of, you know, it's become more difficult to, for us to know. And yeah. what do you think about that? Well, I, I think this, um, I think you've hit the nail on the head because um, in my thesis, I did, you know, I did argue that, you know, um, from the age of enlightenment, or, you know, the enlightenment era, the kind of the dominant mode for critical thinking and examining the world around us has been basically one of reason. And where you know, so we have um, you know the idea of the use of empiricism, of scientific uh, rationale, uh, the deployment of facts and logic uh, and skepticism to the world around us, uh, also to belief systems from things like religion, uh, but also things like the divine right of the monarchy. And so what happens is that this leads to things like. Um, the secular, like, secularization thesis or the disenchantment thesis of Max Weber. You know, so the idea here is that, um, you know, scientific reason and rationality become the, the dominant way in which we determine value. And but the value here is things like facts, truth, and these come to create um, reality. You know, the, you know, so the idea, the real is that which can be explained by the laws of science and the value of facts and the truth can be deduced by objective and replicable means um, to quote panograph. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, but this, but that, but that thing then is that um, religion, supernatural uh, phenomena um, or natural, uh, natural philosophy um, gets relegated or demoted to being fiction or superstition and this then becomes the realm of the irrational um and if you know anything about like the you know, the, the history of esoteric traditions you know if you read um what's been happening in our academic field is that the esoteric you know on one point is being attacked by its institutional religion as heresy but then comes the ride of the age of enlightenment where it then argues that this is just um irrationalism superstition but then what happens is, is that, um, is that the age of modernity and subsequent historical epochs, and they contain the, they, they contain the seeds for its own undoing, shall we say. Um, you know, if you look at kind of the aesthetics of modernity, there is, you know, people think it's postmodern, but it actually has its definite roots in modernity, this, um, this exploding of um, points of view. Um, you, so there is no one determinate perspective on reality. Um, there is also this kind of, this 
we might call through avant-garde art and modernist literature, this de things like derealization of the world where the, the, the external world becomes subsumed to our internal forces, our psychological states, so to speak. And then at the same time, we have this e explosion in technological mass culture. Um, so things, you know, so what happens here is that um, things such as cinema, um, radio, television, and then digital technologies, um, it creates what um, you know could be called a supernaturalization of everyday life. Um, they basically, I, you know, it creates, it, it copies, um, you know, it's it, our our memories. Uh, become external to us. We see the world more and more through um, images of cinema, screens, of televisions. They come to create a stand-in for our memories, our history, and then when it or a form of prosthetic memory. And so the problem here is that you know then what happens is is that um, what becomes our memory, therefore our reality, becomes a lot more malleable. Um, and this is where we start talking about things like the postmortem turn. And so, very simply, um, you know, in my thesis, um, what's happening here is that the, with postmodernism, you know, it gets into a huge argument about what it is and what it isn't. You know, you have the it can be a historical uh, period, um, which people generally argue happens after post World War Two. But then there's also postmodern aesthetics. And so the idea here is that you have what, you know, I argue it was three things, the decline and erosion of uh, meta-narratives. So not only religion, but also of science. And so the idea is that you have this skepticism um, to this kind of domination of um, singular narratives which come to create our worldview, which therefore is our reality. And so you, the idea is there's this multi, multitude of different viewpoints and histories. Then you get to shift in our kind of our economic and social worlds through capitalism, where there's a shift in the global north from the creation of goods and manufacturing of heavy industry to an informational economy. Uh, it goes from the material to the immaterial. And so the idea here is that it goes more into the creation of signs and symbols. And then, of course, this is facilitated by the ubiquity of new media and digital technologies. This allows for this acceleration of the reproduction of the sign. And this is where John Baudelaire comes in. Um, and Baudelaire, he's a fascinating uh, character. Um, he was part of that 70s school of French thought, although he was an outlier within um, kind of French thinking, um, but he was alongside people like um, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, who wrote the double volume Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And then you have Jean-Francois Lyotard, who wrote The Libidinal Economy. And what Baudrillard did was he, um, he starts off by being a communist or a Marxist, but as he's examining the world around him, he feels that classical theory is becoming untenable in this increasingly uh, mediatized, um, uh, corporatized world. And 
He say, argues essentially that in such texts like it's symbolic exchange and death and simulation simulacra, which came out in 1981, that um, society doesn't organize itself around the production of goods and commodities based on needs and wants, but it kind of becomes more about um, the exchange value. It becomes a world of simulation, a play of images and signs and symbols. And this creates what we call simulacra. And very simply, what happens here is that, you know, when you create images, whether it's paintings or photography, that there is kind of a, an indexal relationship with what we call the real, you know, uh, that there is this reality um, that we have. But in Baudelaire's world is that these signs and symbols, you know, whether it's um, logos or news media images or um, or just um, uh, products or objects is that they they don't have like increase there's no link to an actual real um, the simulation now comes in to stand in for the real so it's no longer a question of reality and fiction because what happens here is that the real kind of whittles away and disappears and we live in the world of hyper reality you know where the problem is it's not a question of is this real or not but artificialness is impossible to fake now. And um, and so what happens here is that, um, just thinking about this, is that you see this not just in Baudelaire, but we see it as well with the Situationists, uh, which were a group of radical thinkers and artists in France, like from the late 50s through to the 70s. And if you've ever read uh, Marcus Grail's Lipstick Traces, he talks about these, and you know, he, they called it the spectacle, where they take Marx's idea that social relations uh, are mediated through ec economic relations. They take it a step further and say, well, no, all social relations are mediate, uh, mediated by images, signs, and symbols. And the idea here is that that dichotomy between reality and fiction between the real and the artificial, these boundaries tend to dissolve. And, you know, so we have this idea of the, um, the fictioning of reality or the realization that what we call reality was made up of fictions in the first place, you know. Uh, but meanwhile, um, there is this kind of, also this fiction, not just this fiction of reality, but then fiction itself becomes um, uh, helps to drive reality in that sense, if that makes any sense. And so this leads to, in my, uh, in my thesis, to Baudelaire's concept of theory fiction, um, which in itself um, we call um, from simulation theory. And um, so, yeah, very simply, theory fiction this is kind of like a, a soup top or kind of a um, an evolution of what you might call speculative fiction, okay? And so the idea here is that um, if you look in the academy, you know, or look at um, academic theory or critique, is that, you know, the idea is, is that um, we're meant to pierce the veil or lift the veil on the spectacle and we see the underlying structures of power and domination. But if what Baudelaire says is that we live in a hyper-real world and there's no longer a quote-unquote real, 
and we just live in the world of simulation, then theory itself is untenable in that sense. Yeah, it's, it, it itself is a fiction, okay? And we realize that fiction, um, that, well, reality powers fiction. Meanwhile, fiction kind of feeds into the real. And so he argues that we must look not to the academy for explaining the world around us, but in the world of art, in the world of, of literature. And he argued that we should think of critical theory as science fiction. And famously, um, he argues that um, the British writer J.G. Ballard is an exemplar, that his style of writing captured the world much better than any formal theory or philosophy. And this was picked up by groups such as the Cybernetic Cultures Research Unit, um, which was mentioned in my master's thesis and is a chapter in my PhD. And But this is where the idea that, um, that fiction becomes a carrier upon which ideas can be explored. But here's the key to, and this is where it gets really interesting in esotericism studies. Um, if you've ever read um, things like uh, the writings of Aaron Rukama, and he very recently uploaded uh, here the draft of his chapter to this forthcoming collected edition on uh, contemporary esotericism on speculative fiction. If you look at the modes such as weird fiction, science fiction, the Gothic and horror, um, esoteric thinkers and people involved with theory fiction use these uh, genre modes and forms of fiction. But these genre modes themselves have their roots in esoteric traditions and currents. And so what happens, so the idea here is that this be then comes into the realm of, uh, you know, the, you know the, these become the realm of magical thinking. If we think of writing and reading as a form of magical action, we're now moving into the realm of the magical, you know. And, you know, so that's when we're looking into things like Philip K. Dick, H.P. Lovecraft, and J.G. Ballard, who on the surface, many people would not consider to be uh, esoteric in, in their worldview or occultist, but I argue both in my master's and in my PhD thesis that, you know, you, sh you can make an argument that Ballard is a very esoteric writer. So. How is it looking sounding so far to you? Are we going way off into the, the woods? No, you know? not yet. Not in my mind anyway, but there's just so much. I mean, yeah. just in this past five minutes, the things that you've mentioned, there's just so much to talk about. So I'm like, where do I go from here? <laughs> because oh. what, what point do I like want to bring up again? I so think. The, yeah. So the writer, for example, Mark Fisher, I argue, because um, in his PhD thesis, Mark Fisher really leans into um, cyberpunk and Baudrillard. Baudrillard was a big influence on cyberpunk, where 
one of the themes in cyberpunk is the blurring of the virtual and the material and uh, the blurring of, of reality and fantasy um, through cyberspace but the the real um, but the idea that the simulation is more real than real itself and he basically points that you know the that Fisher says, you know, this that the expansion into fiction of fiction into theory has an ambivalent effect upon theory. If theory can no longer be distinguished from fiction, if fiction can perform theory, and theory must then become fiction, you know, so it's the idea of map and territory. So the idea here is that um we enter into this kind of cybernetic loop where the, where fiction and reality feed on each other, you know, where they inform each other. And then the realization that um, what Ballard points out is that we live in a world of fictions of every kind, um, which I talk about in my PhD um, thesis. You know, you know, he argued, um, he, had, he did an essay in 1971, and this was way before cyberpunk or the CCRU or even a decade before Baudrillard even caught on to this, he basically argued that in a world driven by consumer capitalism, that the literary writer is no longer the singular bearer of artistic genius in the production of a fictional world because our entire world through advertising, mm. through mass media, uh, through uh, politics, um, it's just, you know, we're living in a world where the writer is just one cog in a whole machine that's creating, filling our environment with fictions of every kind. And then, you know, so the whole idea is that institutions, um, be it political, economic or cultural, you know, they seek to alter or change what we would call consensual reality. Um, and so what happens is fictions then go, get absorbed by the public through its interaction with mass media. So Ballard then advocated science fiction um, both as a genre and as a mode of reading as the only possible realization, or possible realism, sorry, in an increasingly artificial society. And this then gets into, into really weird because when he did an introduction to the, is the French publication of Crash, um, he gets really into the realm of the magical, you know, so he basically says here that we live in a world of ruled by fictions of every kind. Mass merchandising, advertising, politics conducted as a branch of advertising, the instant translation of science and technology into popular imagery, the increasing blurring and intermingling of identities within the realm of consumer goods, and the preempting of any free or original imaginative response to experience by the television screen. We live inside an enormous novel. For the writer, it is less and less necessary for them to invent the fictional content of the world. The fiction is already there. The writer's task is to invent the reality. In the past, we have always assumed that the external world around us has represented reality, however confusing or uncertain, and that the inner world of our minds, dreams, hopes, ambitions, are represented, represented the realm of fantasy and the imagination. These rules, too, it seems to me, have been reversed. The most prudent and effective method of dealing with the world around us is to assume that it's a complete fiction. And conversely, the one small mode of reality left to us is inside his own, our own heads. 
So when you listen to that, you are basically talking about magic. You're talking about magical thinking. You're talking about the ideas that our imaginations will can create forms of reality, which then go uh, out into the outer world, which itself is a fiction and can infect our external world. So it, in a sense, the uh, what the fiction of our imagination can go out there and effect actual change. And they, he wrote this back in the 70s. <laughs> so, yeah, so you realize very quickly you go down an incredible rabbit hole of, you know, speculative fiction, theory fiction, um, and you just realize that, that there is a power within fiction. And this is what groups like the Cybernetic Cultures Research Unit uh, glommed onto, you know, and they argue that, um, you know, through a series of essays that they wrote was that um, fiction has the power, has a power that is often disavowed, you know, because it's fiction, you know, fiction is real, but, and they, through terms like concepts like hyperstition, um, through their own writing, um, and through the use of people such as Lovecraft, uh, William Burroughs, and to a lesser extent, people like Ballard, they they utilize the circuits of fiction, of literary fiction and genre fiction to, in effect, perform changes in the world around us. How does that sound? It sounds absolutely fabulous. And you're doing a wonderful job of explaining this. And, you know, you're you know, circling maybe. back to... Uh, <laughs> To your feedback loops and infection, and you just mentioned it now, hyperstition. Um, mm. I talked with uh, with Rowan Cabrales in uh, in podcast episode four about hyperstition. We talked about it a little bit more in episode eight when I did the Hellier roundtable with Thomas von Breda. And at that point, I noticed a lot of uh, feedback from from those episodes about not really fully understanding this concept of of hyperstition. So if we can maybe sit with this for a little bit and um, yeah. and talk about this, because you, you, you mentioned in your master thesis that this could be seen as a distilled form of simulacra. So yeah. here we got the link between Baudrillard and simulacra. Now we're going into this idea of hyperstition. So yeah. it is it for, I guess, for I mean, when I was first introduced to this concept and, and all of these ideas, I was also just sitting there with my mouth open, not mm. really fully understanding what it is. But as you go along, as you keep reading, as you keep thinking about it, then it starts to become more understandable. So hopefully this this podcast episode will also contribute to this understanding. So uh, history of hyperstition. You mentioned CCRU. Let's just get into it. Okay. Um, okay. So I will try not to go cover too much of the ground that uh, our mutual friend Rowan covered when she covered in her chat with you about hyperstition. But I think, you know, because obviously when um, in that podcast episode, there was a lot of talk about temporal anom anomalies and yeah. circuit, stuff like this. Yeah, but yeah. I think very quickly, I think the best way, and I heard, um, uh, Ed Berger, who is um, who is a kind of a blogger and a writer, and a podcast episode, he kind of nailed it very simply that 
hyperstition is very much the science of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he argues that um, it's modeled, uh, yes, on the the feedback loops processes of fictioning. So it's kind of cy- cybernetics where mm. the outputs of fiction feed into our cultural circuits, which then kind of alters our um, the, the structures and social systems of belief, you know. And so what Ed Berger points out is that, you know, we, as we mentioned, we live in fictions of every type. And he mentioned that Marx, for example, points out that capitalism is a social fiction. It's an abstraction that presents itself as real. And what happens is, you know, in our in the you know in the critique of capitalism, is that um, in the realm of you know it becomes less a superstition and becomes ideology. Uh, how it moves from being something which is a social fiction. It becomes real in the minds of people um, to the point that a lot of Marx's writings, especially things like uh, commodities and commodity fetishism, takes on the metaphor of religion. You know, we imbibe in it at a level of belief to the point where we now talk of capitalism as this ironclad immutable law of nature. It is common sense. It is the natural order of things. Um, to you know, and this is what Mark Fisher was writing about in his observation critique of capitalism, that it also almost becomes gnostic in nature. You know, he argues that this idea of capitalism has so uh, expanded our you know our imminent world that, including our own heads, that we cannot imagine any outside to this. You know, and through its archons of ideology and through the technicians of capital that, you know, we are creating this world which seems to be reality, even though it is is itself a fiction. But so the CCIU think about this, um, but what they do very differently is that they talk about this idea of the idea of, of hype, of the investment that people place on brands, events, objects, entities, you know, and it, it, in, it, it in itself um, doesn't require belief on our part. I think Ron mentioned this idea of unbelief, you know, and so you can see about it in, in like capitalism, but you can also see about it in more recent uh, phenomena, like in uh, the financial market or things like the fire Festival, you know, where... Um, well, like with GameStop, um, where that, that thing of like, well, there's a hype train where you don't actually have to believe in it, but you end up uh, taking part in it by talking about it, mm-hmm. by circulating uh, memes and images. And what happens is, is that something that is a fictional, that's fictional or social fiction takes on a life or reality of its own. Um this reality doesn't have to be material. Right. You know, I mentioned the fire festival. You know, if anyone has ever seen, you know, Netflix documentaries or stories about it, for a while, um, this was going to be like the the music uh, lifestyle festivals to end all festivals. It was going to leave Burning Man for dust, but and everybody bought into it. It was going to be this incredible thing. All these celebrities hop on board. All these influencers. 
And these influencers then start talking about it more. And they have started to, you know, uh, create this momentum where the um, fire festival for a while becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But then, of course, it hits um, the reality principle of our material world and it, it fell apart. But, you know, if you think about Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guttari, they talk about materialism, not in sense of that way, but in terms of more the, the virtual and the actual. And so you don't necessarily have to have a physical materialism for this reality. Um, and so that's very simply what it is. Um, I think what I'll mention is, like, um, I think Ron mentioned this, um, is that the CCRU kind of builds upon this in a series of essays. Yeah. Um, and if the particular is the essay Lemurian Time War. Yes, yes. Yes, they now vein this idea. Now, what they point out to here is that, um, you know, they add in ideas, you know, that um, the their own uh, characters that the CCRU creates, these hyperstitional carriers, these kind of personas, um, such as Peter Visparov uh, or Chit Stilwell or Oscar Sarkon, with which they can imbibe, you know, they can, through the hive mind of the CCRU, the people involved, will give a voice, um, almost creating like a thought form, and then just releasing them out there and see how much hype can these characters generate. And so the idea here is that they effectively create this idea of uh, an incident where, um, if I remember correctly here, uh, is that in the in the story of Lemurian Time War, um, you have this situation where um, I think this guy, um, Kay, um, if I remember correctly, um, William Kay, and he approaches the CCRU and says that there was an incident involving William Burroughs in 1958, where perusing the secret or uh, uh, the occult library of Peter Visparov, he comes across uh, this book containing the story Ghost Lemurs of Madagascar, which is a 1988 text that Burroughs is yet to write, but is there in front of him. But the manuscript is dated three centuries earlier. Um, and then this sends Burroughs into this weird fugue state. This kind of is um, the reality studio around him starts to crumble. And then the idea here is that from here, that Burroughs from this moment has been conducting a clandestine time war against what Burroughs would call the One God Universe. Yes, and essentially what the One God Universe comes to stand in for, um, you know, the idea of the technocracy, um, the uh, or the idea that there is this overarching fiction um, that, how do you describe it? Um, it built, well, I've got it here. Um, it builds its monopolistic dominion upon the magical power of the word. Uh, and what happens is, it's like it's, you know, it, this is like a stand-in for um, institutional religion, for capitalism, for the technocratic ideals of industrial modernism. Because, you know, Al-Azizek, you know, um, it, first off, it tries to put itself as, you know, this is not an ideology, this is not a fiction. It masks its its own fictionality. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, it puts itself as the only reality in existence. And as part of this, it will subsume smaller or competing fictions, you know, into its into its own body, so or metaphysical body, and then you know, it, um, and it you know, so it's, this is the idea of uh, recuperation, you know, or co-option, and so the idea here is that um, even when you know, like uh, alternative reality systems, then get marked maybe as um, as part of its own mythos. So the idea of evil, you know, versus good, you know. Um, and so the idea is, is that the one God universe works through fictions that to repudiate its own fictional status. It is, it's basically, the it's Plato's cave, effectively, mm. you know. And, and so what happens here is that from this, from this moment where he comes across his own text that he is yet to write, but the text itself is dated back, you know, three centuries earlier, with, um, if I remember correctly, um, regarding this um, this pirate who discovers and creates this Libertania colony on Madagascar, um, this this basically short circuits the One God universe and the circuits of control in Burroughs, and he starts to see the world for as it actually is, and therefore. He understands that it is through fiction, it is through writing that you know. So, and they and what CCU argues is that there's this kind of this low-level disinformation campaign that gets put across through academia, for example, to that labels Burroughs as a postmodern um, writer, or that his his writing is aesthetic in nature, as opposed to functional. And the whole point here is that his um, Burroughs writing is functional, therefore it is magical, because it, the functionality of it through things like the cut-up um, and through the use also of um, the cut-up in terms of sound is there to destabilize the overriding um, uh, the overriding reality studio, so to speak, or the LT program. And this is where, you know, um, this is where you get this nexus between, and this is part of my PhD thesis, this nexus between the CCRU and contemporary occultism, such as chaos magic. Because, you know, um, and this is from the Murian Time War, you know, the, in order to work, you know, um, you know, the ODU feeds on belief. In order to work, the story that runs on reality has to be believed, which is to say the existence of a control program Determining reality must not be suspected or even believed. You know, credulity in the face of the ODU meta narrative is inevitably coupled with a refusal to accept that entities like control have any substantive existence. Which, therefore, he says, this is why to get out of the reality program, you mu there must be a systematic shedding of all beliefs as a prerequisite, which is, for example, a core theme of chaos magic. Is this antinomian shedding of all established norms, habits, and belief systems? And what they do, though, is they critique um, postmodernism because they argue that postmodernism is just merely this continuation of um, representational representational reality. Is that they place fiction in this metaphysical frame where it's this nice 
object that can be gazed upon but has no power. And this is the idea, you know, the idea that um, the academy tries to frame Burroughs as a postmodern writer or an aesthetic writer, as opposed to uh, a magician who works through the word, who works through writing. And you know, so the idea here is that the term of nothing is true, everything is permitted. You know, what they say is that they, um, they caution that it's not the postmodern relativism of nothing is real. On the contrary, they argue, nothing is true because there's no single authorized version of reality. Instead, there is um, an excess. There are multiple competing realities. And so what you then get here is, is that where magic and sorcery and esoteric, uh, esoteric worldview can come to destabilize what they call the one God universe. So that's the, that's the background of hyperstition. Right. right. That, that's the background to it. So it's the idea here is that our world is made up of fictions. And our fictions therefore come to stand in and become reality. So they're no they're no longer thought of as fictions. To us they they are the reality. And that's the power of fiction. Mm -hmm. And so then once you realize this, you can use fictions to create, you know, I, I call them like like little IED devices that can erupt maybe years after the, the writing to effect or destabilize established um, established cultural and social norms. And so what um, if I find it here um, is that there are several different ideas here. Um, you, know, you have people, for example, like Alex Williams, uh, when he talks about it, he says this narratives able to effectuate their own reality through the workings of feedback loops, generating new socio-political attractors. But the CCRU talks about it as, one, an element of effective culture that makes itself real. Two, a fictional quantity, functional as a time-traveling device. Three, a coincidence intensifier. And four, a call to the old ones, which is very esoteric yeah. in its own point. And... But what I did was in my master's thesis, I said, right, let's take this, this, this model and apply it to a real life incident, and which was the Slender Man. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so yes, yeah, so this is kind of a really roundabout way. We're already an hour in, and we're only now <laughs> talking about the Slender Man. So but this is good. I like the roundabout. So, okay, so we, so Slender Man in uh, everything you've just set up until this point, you were talking about, you know, the 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 fictions as being this. Uh, this thing that you know couldn't affect us, couldn't touch us because it wasn't real, and yet, and yet, you know, we're if you know if we're if we're uh, in this in this idea of of hyperstition that everything is a fiction, and we're just operating on the assumption that certain fictions are actually real. Yeah. Um. Then we can look at a, a case study of the Slender Man as yeah. this, and you mentioned also about the CCRU creating these characters and then putting it out there to see, you know, what will happen. Yeah. In with Slender Man, in this case, Slender Man is a entity, an image that was put out there, and then something happened, and then. Hey, hey. A lot yeah. of things happened. So uh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if the listeners are going to be familiar with who Slender Man is, how Slender Man 
came to be in our in our uh, in our idea in our heads in our minds. Uh, so maybe a little bit of a background of Slenderman, and then we can get into the case study of how this is an example of hyperstition. Okay. So, um, so yeah, the Slenderman. I mean, when I was writing my master's thesis, this was like in 2020, and Slenderman had already become part of our pop cultural psyche. Um, it's argued, for, for example, as the internet's first folk devil or folk legend. Right. And so, um, I think that I think we'll kind of work as I did my thesis. I'll work backwards first off. So, okay. uh, in the public's imagination, um, it starts off as a moral panic because in 2014 in Wisconsin, in the U.S., uh, these two girls, uh, Anissa uh, Wire and Morgan Geyser. And they're two 12-year-old girls. And they take their friend, um, who was a girl called uh, Peyton uh, Leutner, into the local woods nearby their town. Uh, and then once they get into the woods, um, uh, Bayer and Ge uh, Geyser attack Leutner. And they stab uh, Leutner 19 times. And they leave her for dead. But miraculously, um, uh, Leutner survives this attack. And she manages to gain help, and there was, you know, they were, uh, the two girls were arrested shortly afterwards, and the case became like a media spectacle. Because what happened was, is that when they were interviewed by the police, they basically said that in their defense, they were um, attempting to kill Leutner to curry favor um, and gain grace with an entity they called the Slenderman. And then all of a sudden came this massive, panic you know of like what is the slender man and you know um and then of course it's like they found this on the internet do you know what your child is doing on the internet you know which is you know it has elements of moral panics going way back to the realms of the gothic penny dreadfuls the yeah. you know ec uh, ec comics and the comics moral panic video nasties and the satanic panic so yeah this Dungeons is another and dragons <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so what is the Slender Man? So, um, and so what happened was, is that oh, obviously what happened is that um, we rewind back to 2007. And so what happened in 2007, um, there's this kind of, uh, the internet, it's, uh, social media is just starting to pick up. Yeah. Okay. And so what you have here is that, um, there was this forum site called somethingawful.com. And in 2000, it wasn't 2007, sorry, 2009, uh, there was a, a kind of a forum topic uh, called Create Paranormal Images. So the, mem uh, the members of the forum were challenged to upload images, real images, Photoshop images, to show the existence of ghosts or supernatural phenomena, which, as we all know, in esoteric studies, there has been a long relationship between you know the use of you know media technology and the, the capturing of the ephemeral you know uh, of ghosts of apparitions of of a spiritual nature yeah, yeah. and so a week or so passes nothing much happens but then after about 10 days um there was a user called victor surge whose real name was eric uh, knudsen he uploads two photoshopped images and so the first image is of a group of teenagers that are kind of walking or running away from something in the distance. 
and they look quite stressed or, you know, they're kind of a bit, you know, fearful. And then there's, a, and then in the rear, you see this figure and the features are blurred. But um, again, it's this tall stick-like figure in the background. And it seems like the kids are trying to run away from said figure. And then the second image is like a simple image of uh, children playing in a, a kind of a nursery school playground. And in they're all in the foreground, but in the shadow of a tree in the far background, there's this tall, mysterious, tall figure in a kind of a black suit, which seems they seems to have tentacles for arms, you know. And in the background, you see some children kind of congregating around him. And for example, on that, there's a kind of a, a little blurb or text alongside it saying, "One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze." Notable for being taken the day on which 14 children vanished of what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformity cited as film defects by officials. Fire at library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. And this was by, and it's got here, 1986 photographer Mary Thomas, who has been missing since June the 13th. So from these two images, all of a sudden, um, Few more images of the Slender Man by uh, the user Victor Serge gets uploaded, and then what happens is is that uh, more images get this as uh, kind of this cycle starts to take a momentum of its own. Um, and then another user called Thoreau Up, you know, play on Thoreau, but <laughs> Thoreau, I know it's uh, internet humor is wonderful, says that. He finds a reference to the Slender Man in uh, 16th century folklore and provides a screen capture of a translated story um, and has an image of the Slender Man in like a, a woodcut, mm. like 16th century woodcut art. And then more users then find, oh, I see this image of the, the Slender Man in this old Romanian folktale. And then what happens is the snowball effect starts coming. And it, you know, then over the case of weeks and months, uh, the Slender Man burst out from the Something Awful forum onto YouTube and Reddit, and then eventually onto Twitter. But then it then starts taking a life of its own. There, there then becomes these uh, these YouTube web series. Um, there were three in total. One was called um, Everyman Hybrid. One was called Tribe Twelve, and then the most famous one was called Marble Hornets. And this was um, the idea here was that a user on the Something Awful forum said um, that he, this is the premise, is that his school friend Alex was working on a student film titled Marble Hornets. But then after several weeks of filming, Alex becomes agitated, antisocial, fearful, and then abandons them. And then one day, this user, Seagars, he calls, he calls himself, receives this package full of all the tapes from the making of this film and instructing him that he should burn them. But Seagars then, or he's known as Jay, um, then proceeds to watch these films. And then what happens here is that when, as you see more and more of these tapes, which get uploaded onto the YouTube series, you start seeing that um, the, his friend Alex comes into contact with the Slender Man. And this is where it really takes off. The Slender Man starts, you know, spreading as like um, throughout a lot of these internet 
forums, subcultures, and then eventually it burst through in you know in two thousand and you know fourteen, you know up to this Wisconsin stabbing. But then it breaks out into other things. Um, even before that, um, there was Slenderman becomes this independent uh, video game. Um, there was there was two actually. There was called Slender the Eight Pages and Slender the Arrival. And then um, after the doc, you know, after the stabbing incident in the Moral Panic, there are these documentaries um, such as the HBO documentary Beware the Slenderman, and then a series of uh, these like indie films and mainstream films about the Slenderman. You know, um, which they were not very good. I will say they're. they're <laughs> Bog standard, you know, pop for you know, yeah. you know, C, B minus grade movies, mm-hmm. you know, um, but from these two Photoshop images, the, um, the through the kind of the circulation and memification that we get through social media and internet subcultures, Slenderman takes on a life of its own, yeah. Yeah. and so I applied. The, um, I applied the kind of the model of hyperstition and argued that the Slender Man was kind of a localized case of hyperstition. And so what I argued here is that, you know, so first off, the first stage, you know, which we say an element of effective culture that makes itself real. So what happens is, is that, um, is that in this idea is that um, it's like a, a collective storytelling, okay? And so what happens here is that um, through this online um, online forum is that it goes into kind of what I might call open source um, storytelling or yeah. myth-making. Yeah. And what happens is is that um, it's what the CCRU called is the collectivization of the fictional system. So what happened is, is that um, uh, people would upload their images and people within the thread would go, ah, that doesn't quite work, you know. Um, you know, it doesn't. It should, you know, the slender man shouldn't have a hat, or it shouldn't look this right. way. Yeah. What happens is, is that um, through this iterative feedback, this, you know, this kind of like um, cybernetic feedback of storytelling, is that several of the main canon aspects happen. So it, very early on, the tentacles they lose the tentacles. Um, the Slender Man is faceless. Uh, it wears a black suit. Um, when the arrival of the web series, for example, um, so it shows, for example, how you get slender sickness. Um, so when this, when uh, encounters or exposure to the Slender Man results in coughing fits or nosebleeds or um, electronic disturbances and noise, you know, and glitching, on your video camera, so you when the Slender Man appears, mm-hmm. or digital noise, yeah. And so, this is a collect. You know, so what happens is is that um, this cultural production becomes uh, you know cybernetic. It's collective, and they you know, they kind of it all feeds in on each other. And so, this idea here is that they are effectively creating a legend. Okay. Uh, and then what happens here is that you know this it, it, they create the rules of it. So, and then this moves into the second part, which is a fictional quantity functioning as a time traveling device. So what um, 
So a good example of this outside would be the case of, it's like um, a, a viral form of retconning. So for example, uh, a good case would be uh, cyberpunk with Neuromancer. Uh, William Gibson, he, you know, way before the internet or cyberspace becomes part of our lives, creates a fictional representation of cyberspace. But such is the power of um, such is the power of the cyberpunk text that it implants itself on the mind of people. So cyberspace ends up becoming um, uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, so it's like it's basically using, and this is where Rowan talks um, talked about the the temporal loops, yeah. the non-linear feedbacking um, of back into cultural history. You know, so things like the Matrix, the Terminator, um, 12 Monkeys. And so what happens, as I've mentioned, is that all of a sudden the people involved with creating the Slender Man mythos all of a sudden start finding him everywhere. You know, they 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 trace him back to um, Egyptian mythos in the, you know, 5000 um, BC, as I mentioned, the 16th century, um, with German folklore, Romanian folktales, you know, so they give it a sense of depth, a sense of myth. You know, so it's breaking it free from uh, a thread on the internet forum. But then they start seeing like, oh, wow, it, um, he's everywhere. They link him to like the tall man from the Phantasm movies, yeah. the gentleman demons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the men in black. Yeah. yeah. Uh, J even Jack Skellington from The Nightmare Before Christmas. They also uh, bring in Lovecraft. But also, um, Marxy Daniel Lusky's tale "House of Leaves," you know, and so they what in the sense that they op they utilize um, different literary um, forms or narratives. So things like diary entries, police and medical reports, news articles, um, images, drawings, photographs. Okay, so what they're doing here is that they they kind of infect cultural history with incidents of the slender man to go the slender man has always been there mm -hmm. we've worked out who it was yeah. like a hyperstition and then the th stage three is the entity as a coincidence intensified so this is where the concept of unbelief right or, or the hype or, or the phenomenon of hype so yeah. it's intensifying the modes of circulation and feedback and whether it's true or not it's a question of transmuting fictions into truths. And so what, ha what happened here is that as it becomes like a meme and as it gets spread out, so what was happening was that even though the Slender Man is thoroughly a constructed fiction, which you can which you can map out from the very first post, what was happening was um, these this specific subculture of people, you know, um, was that they found themselves, even though it was a fictional and actually they invest part of themselves within it. You know, and so what they were doing was they were talking about like, wow, I'm 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 just been walking through this dark path at night, and I I'm I'm seeing things in my peripheral vision. You know, um, they were they were found they were having disturbed sleep patterns, and. Mm -hmm. um, they were kind of like I'm walking down, I'm walking into like a, a wooded area on my way home, and I'm getting this strange feeling. They're spooking themselves out, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you're not referring to the girls in this incident that committed the crime. You're talking about other Internet uh, users, I guess you could say, on these forums that were talking about how, as they had been in, uh, introduced and, and come you know, into yeah. contact with this, uh, uh, with this story and this entity of Slender Man. They started to notice different things happening to themselves. Uh, the quality upon yes. them. And it's also amongst the people who are creating the Slender Man themselves. They're creating this myth and they're freaking out about it. Yeah. You know? they're, they're creating a magical entity in a sense. Yes. Yeah. It was um, um, in folkloric studies. Uh, I looked to the writing of Jeffrey Tolbert and he uses the concept uh, of this. I argue that Slender Man is the reverse of the concept of ostension, which is you know, the acting out of narratives in reality, you know, and, you know uh, sometimes harmly or harmlessly or sometimes even in more extreme ways. And so, you know, Tolbert argued that the Slender Man is part of a process that adds credence to the narrative powers as a legend, all right? You know, so it's, it becomes this meta-textual fiction. Um, but what they're doing is they're, they're, added, they're investing part of themselves in its creation. Therefore, even though it's self-consciously creating a fiction, it's plausibility as a representat representative of the legend genre. So basically what it is, is that they're making the Slenderman legend seem like a legend, which has the power to, as we say, freak people out, yeah. you know. And and so the whole here is this, is, is this immersion and participation in the mythos. And this is what, um, this is the kind of the cycle of memific hype that the CGIU is talking is central to hyperstition. And then there's stage four, a call to the old ones, where, you know, through what we have, you know, so this idea that, you know, where, and this is where we get Lovecraft, and hence a call to the old ones that, you know, as we are through our technologies, through our ability to see beyond our perceptual uh, framework of the human, you know, we're able to go further out to the edges of the universe and go into subatomic distances. You know, we're able to measure time to such an infinitesimal quality that w what we might call the present, one second, is much closer to eternity than to this Planck's constant of time. And so the idea is that um, we're, we're discovering the hidden dimensions of nature. You know, uh, this is the, the quote-unquote outside erupting. You know, um, this is the Lovecraftian idea where the monsters are not the irrational. This is this is the hyper-rational in this sense. And so, you know, this we talk about this in terms of, you know, the hyper-object, you know, of financial capitalism or of Gaia, you know, um, where the, the workings are just beyond our perceptual framework. Okay, so the idea here is that um, when it came to the Slender Man, um, you know, the, I, I argued is that you know, things like Marble Hornets, you know, and its idea of the evil text or um, the circulation of new forms of media, and um, this idea of this evil lurking, lurking underneath the, or this the outside lurking underneath the surface of everyday reality. Um, this infects us, you know, um, this, this eruptions, 
um, exposes the audience to this these things which are unaccountable, aka the weird. Okay, so I, I you know so I mentioned before the uh, the moral panic and the media hype after this uh, this stabbing incident, and so um, this is the occult potentialities that lurks underneath the Slender Man. And the occultist and writer, Cat uh, Vincent, argues that what they did in, when they created the Slender Man was effectively they created a mythical thought, thought form, a yeah. tulpa. Yeah. You know? And this tulpa then ends up, or like the golem, ends up having a life of its own. It, it gets put out there through the the you know the the circuits of social media and our virtual world and it becomes actualized you know and so um, so the idea of a slenderman as a topper of modern magic is you know it allows a space where both the slenderman is both quote unquote able to exist and not exist you know and this is the implicit aspect on the audience investing in it through the to the actions of the people on this internet forum is that they give it a magical life and then it just runs rampant through uh, the air internet. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so this idea then is like, well, what does that mean? Um, it's an online textual phenomenon. It's part of a cultural process that's hyperstitial in nature. It was a fictional entity that became real or gained its own reality in the minds of many people. And you can and it's basically what Mark Fisher called the agency of the virtual. You know, mm -hmm. and, um, and of course, he's talking about capitalism, but we see this now that the Slender Man is symptomatic of where our own lives are spent in increasingly uh, in a world where the virtual and the physical, uh, the ontological boundaries are becoming more and more effaced. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And we have, like, for example, we have our physical identities and our physical selves, but we have online identities, you know, which sometimes are more real than our physical identities. And then what happens then is then, well, we see it today. I mean, we, you hear a lot of talk about a post-truth world, where what you get here is the, um, the weaponization and the gamification of fictions, okay? Um, reality becomes a battlefield, you know, whether it's climate science or alternative facts. Uh, and th no, this, for example, uh, we see it in the, well, in conspiracy theory, mm. you know. we've Conspiracy theory has been around for centuries, yeah. you know. And we also, for example, see how various um, uh, states and institutions create fictions for ideological. So, for example, you had, you know, uh, in the U.S., uh, sorry, in, in Soviet Russia, you had the Soviet realism movement. You know, the rise of Nazism, there was an aesthetic equality, you know, the aestheticization of Nazi politics with things like the triumph of the will. Meanwhile, uh, liberal ca you know, capitalism is perpetuated through mass media, through Hollywood, through televisions, you know, and th these these create these fictions that attempt to become realities in the minds of people. Mm. But what we have now is that politics, propaganda and discourse um, through digital mass media and social media um, 
move faster. You can go from zero to reality in a in a flash, right. you know. And you see it, you know, from the we have seen it ourselves, you know, from Pizzagate, QAnon, I think, is becoming a the now method where you, it doesn't matter if you can show it's you know the constructed nature of it, you know, that yeah. doesn't matter. No. It's it's this unbelief. It perpetuates itself and it mutates. It brings in more and more other conspiracies and other people. And yeah, we know it's a fiction, and yet it's attained a life of its own yeah. for worse. And this is this means that there is you know it's not an epistical problem, but now from the late twentieth into the twentieth century, we have a problem of reality. And this is where esotericism and occultism now pops its head around the corner and going, hello, <laughs> well, because that's, that's the realm of occult practices, especially in our contemporary uh, esoteric uh, currents and traditions. You know, so, and this is where my PhD project has been kind of really delving more into the idea of um, the accelerationism you know, as a heuristic and a concept, and about how when uh, the explosion from the late 20th century of neoliberal capitalism and this and it's fueled by this explosion in technological innovation has led to this destabilizing of our world, reality, social relations, um, and this allow and this has led to certain occult groups and scenes such as chaos magic and the Cybernetic Cultures Research Unit to take on acceleration as a heuristic instead of trying to fight capitalism or circumvent it. It's coming to terms with it, embracing it from an esoteric standpoint, an esoteric worldview. And so this is where they start blending things like Lovecraft, uh, Burroughs, you know, and once they, they realize is that we live in a world mediatized by competing fictions, then, you know, we can, you can storm, quote unquote, the reality studio and you can use magic to effect changes on your reality from, you know, from your internal imagination onto, quote unquote, external reality, which is a fiction anyway. So, right, right. Please join us for part two, where Bob expands on accelerationism and its problems, how esoteric thought has influenced digital technology, as well as the connections to all of this, to counterculture and new age thought, plus much more, of course. <laughs>